0: Dharma Pond is sustained entirely by donations only there is never a charge as a Buddhist pastor I actually teach in accordance with the 2500 year old Buddhist principles of that the Dharma should be offered freely and supported just by donations so if you can give I would be grateful. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. There's also a PayPal on the website, Dharma Punks NYC. Tonight, topic that's very, very close to my heart, I'm going to talk about the intersections of attachment theory, why attachment theory is important, uh, how it can help you understand yourself, your relationships, and the traits that are... Or the patterns in relationships. And then we're going to be talking about some Buddhist practices as a way to address attachment disturbances in adults so that we can form better bonds. And even if you are doing perfectly well in romantic relationships, thank you very much. These are also beneficial across all of our affiliations. So it's worth your attention so in the dharma right after birth the buddha taught there's this phase of development called nama rupa and that simply means the when our sense of being in a body with a a mind comes to be and it's at this very early stage that our what in buddhism is considered to be our core personality traits are formed And if you ever study any of the most basic Buddhist insights, it's said there are um, these kind of uh, universal, basic personality types and... Um, I'm going to list them for you. And the reason I'm going to list them for you is because then when I talk about attachment, I think you're going to find some eerie similarities and thematic congruency. So um, the first, the first personality type is uh, in early Buddhism it's called Loba. You don't need to know that it's people who are try to attain uh, security in the world and happiness through accumulating grabbing, but most of all, fixating on specific people. And so these are people who are said to, in literally in these 2,500-year-old texts, they give an example. And they say, this is the person who walks into a party and immediately fixates on the most attractive person or the person that they find the most desirable and makes a beeline for them and ignores everyone else. And their strategy We might even call this to a degree today dependent personality disorder, but there's a degree of fixation on specific people and objects to solve, you know, to protect us from the inevitable pains of life. Then there's another personality type called dosa, which is aversive, uh, which are people who go into the party and they see the things they don't like and they just categorize, I don't like this, I don't like that person, I don't like that, the food. And so their orientation to the world is very isolating, very dismissive, finding fault critical, and seek distance as a survival strategy. And then there's a third type, which is called uh, that second type is dosa. The third is moha, Moha, which is confused and delusional. And these are people who are overwhelmed, fearful and are prone to try to always survive by fantasy, essentially dissociating from their lived experience, checking out, and they have a very distorted sense of self. If you're somebody who is constantly trying to fix yourself for craving in the early texts, it says that you will have low confidence, a diminished sense of self. But if you're somebody who's dismissive, who finds always what's wrong in any given situation, then the early texts and the the commentaries uh, say that you'll be probably more grandiose. You'll be more prone to an inflated sense of self or ego rather than a deflated one. Funnily or oddly, most Buddhist teachers stop there with all the bad or the negative care. categories, and they never note that there's a fourth called sada, which is actually those who are confident, who see what's good in the situation and what they want to avoid, who are balanced, who don't try to attain happiness by glomming onto one person. They tend to rely on a support network of what's called kalyanamita. So this fourth is what we will see Uh, corresponds to what we now call secure attachment. So we're a social species, and just bear that in mind if you want. We're a social species, and our core drive is to um, seek safety in numbers. From birth as children, we uh, lock into eye contact with a caregiver to regulate our nervous system and to get our needs met. And so the child's one job is to elicit in a caregiver's uh, uh, internal states that care interest in the child. And the infant expresses its internal state through emotional gestures that are nonverbal. And then hopefully a caregiver will respond to these needs. And so there's four kinds of core needs that attachment theory has shown over the last 50 years, all human beings need from birth to death to lead happy, fulfilling lives. So the first is what's called reliable proximity. And that's simply because we as a species survive through safety in numbers, through being connected with others and Throughout our lifespan, any sustained period of isolation leads to impaired executive function in the frontal lobe, et cetera, accelerated cognitive decline, impaired immune function, anxiety, depression, suicide, insomnia. So it's not good news. And uh, if you would like to read more about it, the great, uh, recently deceased John Cocciopo at the University of Chicago did all the famous loneliness studies and show that it's essentially the number one health crisis in our atomized society. Um, The second core need we have is being seen and understood by someone. Essentially from birth, the child needs to know that it can signal hunger, thirst, overwhelm, fear, joy, uh, whatever, it can signal to its caregiver, what its internal states are, and that caregiver will understand and adjust the environment so that the child now has the sense that its mind or its internal states are understood by another. And this is vital, not just for our own sense of being known in the world as we grow up and become adults, but if we are to ever understand other people especially people we're in relationships with, we have to have first received this early stage of empathy ourselves. If a caregiver, like a mother or father, or someone didn't stop and say, oh, you're angry, or oh, you're scared, you're tired, you're frustrated, the child, one, can't even understand what its mental states are. And it will grow up to have deficits in understanding or what's called mentalizing other people. Other people's emotions will be a mystery. And if you'd like to read about this, there's a great um, psychologist named Peter Fanaghi, who's the expert on borderline personality disorders and treatment for it. And he says that this lack of empathy stage is what lies at the heart of certain four disorders. The third thing we need after proximity and emotional understanding is someone when we're in distress can soothe us and restore our nervous system back to what's called uh, social engage or homeostasis. And if we don't get that, our nervous systems stay dysregulated and we will, over the course of our life, seek dead objects, substances, alcohol, uh, all kinds of ways other than human relationships to regulate our nervous systems. And unfor- unfortunately, the human species needs more than anything else other people to regulate our nervous systems. If we try to do it on our own, we become addicted to whatever it is we've sought to replace other people with. And then finally, I think the I'm, just as important as those previous three, empathy, proximity, and soothing, is a need for what's called express delight. A caregiver that just smiles and expresses a sense of delight in the uh, child's existence. So when you walk into the room as a child, your caregiver would stop and just smile. And these are people who find it easier to confidently engage in the world, to express themselves, to be creative. They expect other people to see what's good in them. And so if we get all of those four things correct, we wind up with what's called secure attachment, which means um, we will, throughout the course of our lives, longitudinal studies show, we'll have Uh, good relationships. We'll be able to trust others, be able to state our needs confidently. We won't hint when it comes to stating our needs. We won't flee intimacy. We will balance relationships, not seeking one person to fix and solve us, nor seeking complete isolation as a way to survive. We will balance it through a community. And Studies have showed you can actually determine an individual's attachment style at 18 months of life. That's a year and a half. And with 75% accuracy, that individual will stay in that attachment style for the rest of their life. That's kind of scary. How do they do it? How can you take an 18-month-old child and figure out its attachment style? Well, it's easier than you think. What you do is you have the mother bring their year and a half year old child into a room with a complete stranger. Now that stranger isn't a serial killer, it's actually a child therapist. And after a while, the mother leaves the room. The secure child will get upset for a little while, will wonder where the mother was, uh, will cry, but then that child will orient towards the therapist in the room and go to the therapist and start you know bonding with that strange adult, because the child understands and believes that other people are trustworthy and can soothe it and can meet its needs. I know for a
1: fact I would not have gone to the <laughs> therapist
0: so um the uh, second style is what we t- what when child is no, child is known as anxious and adult preoccupied. Uh, people who are prone to rumination. They um, are prone to uh, unreliable attachments very often with people who are not emotionally available. They associate love with fireworks, excitement, drama, um, as opposed to people who are secure who associate love with a feeling of safety and being at ease. People with anxious attachment tend to... um, expect abandonment because they experienced a lot of it in childhood. They had a caregiver who was not reliably available or failed to be soothing or at times was just disinterested for, you know, and there was never any pattern of attention. So, These are people that tend to have self-esteem failures, a lot of core shame, a feeling that somewhere in them is something that's unlovable. Children can't blame the environmental deficits that might've happened due to a caregiver or just to a poor bond. They don't blame their parents, they blame themselves. Those children can't afford to come to the conclusion that there's something wrong with daddy. that is too scary for a child. It feels too overwhelming. So the child chooses what feels like the safer interpretation and believes essentially, there must be something unlovable about me. I don't know what it is. I've got to get rid of it. And this sets people off on a trajectory of constantly trying to prove themselves, uh, imposter syndrome, Uh, They're very good workers, but don't tend to pursue their own creative paths. They struggle um, expressing their needs because they expect abandonment. And um, in in this strange test, the 18-month-old child will, when the mother leaves, completely become distraught, stand by the door, at no point will turn to the stranger in the room because the child is fixated on just one person, the, un, you know, the parent that's very often been unreliable. When the parent, father or mother returns, the child will still be inconsolable. They won't trust that the caregiver will stay. Then there's what we call dismissive or avoidance, which are children who didn't hardly ever get reliable soothing, Uh, They eventually gave up on getting their nervous systems regulated by any other human being. And so they become uh, prone to isolated endeavors. If you have a friend who loves skateboarding, gaming, long distance running, they find other people's negative emotions to be engulfing. Whenever there's any turmoil in relationships, they're out the
1: door. And uh,
0: then you've met one.
1: Uh, They don't,
0: uh, their nervous system is prone towards shutting down affects in relationships. At first, they get very excited and they love the chase or the hunt because it's like a video game. But then when they get some form of physical intimacy the obligations of a relationship become overwhelming, engulfing. They fear because early life they probably experience one caregiver is engulfing, so they head for the hills. And uh, if you haven't guessed, that's right. The anxious and avoidant people actually tend to find each other fascinatingly <laughs> attractive and engage in the most. Oh, it's exhausting. If you work as I do in counseling, just, just the the dramas that keep on giving. And um so what does the 18 month year old avoidant child look like? Well, they are the child that when the mother or father leaves the room, they don't give a fight. <laughs> they literally will go over after the obligation of the parent is gone and happily play with get, with blocks or toys or something. They don't pay attention to the therapist. They don't care when the parent returns. They're fully by 18 months of life already self-soothing without relying on other human beings. And you can see this in the trajectory of their life, this gravitation towards what we call auto-regulation, rather than seeking other people to feel safe. Finally, there's the fearful avoidance, disorganized. These are children who are frightened of their caregivers, who when the caregiver leaves the room, the child freezes or very often will run and hide, will not be coaxed out by the therapist from a hiding place, very often, they will just completely freeze in an early dissociative state. They um, expect to be hurt by those who they love, uh, and they experience some, they experience uh, extremely dramatic, um, abusive relationships as normal, and extremely high incidence in adult life of uh, in unhoused populations, incarcerated populations and in drug dependent populations. There's direct longitudinal studies that show the outcome of disorganized attachment. Self-harm and and substance abuse is very common. So um, I would note, because this question always comes up, that attachment styles situationally can be fluid. So even if you listen to that, and have identified yourself as someone else is predominantly anxious, you will have had many, multiple times relationships where you met someone, generally someone who was available and interested, and you'll have lost interest in them, found them boring, or the most common thing I hear is, I didn't feel the spark, no fireworks, no magic, because they don't elicit the drama, the unreliability of childhood, they experience calmness and security as boring, and they don't associate it with love. They might enjoy that in a friend, but in a core relationship, they'll find it unsatisfactory. So if you're anxious, there's probably been times where you were in a relationship with somebody who wanted to be in a relationship with you, and you act, became avoidant suddenly, you lost interest, you didn't pay attention when love was available. On the other hand, if you skewed towards avoidant, then there were times you met another avoidant and you became anxious and fixated on them because they were even more avoidant than you. And the engagement of the dopamine and the hunts was even further activated and it put your nervous system chronically in a sympathetic arousal state. But by and large, Longitudinal studies show that most of us will spend most of our relationships in our predominant attachment style. It's also worth noting that you can be avoidant in romantic relationships, but entirely anxious in other types of relationships. I humorously see this because I spend a lot of time in my life earlier on doing music, hanging out with musicians, And there are a lot of male musicians who in their relationships are completely avoidant, but when it comes to their relationships with bandmates are completely anxious and fall apart the slightest criticism or the slightest lack of interest. So there is, uh, again, you can have multiple attachment styles in different arenas. So um, the more attachment wounds we experience in childhood, the less secure we will feel in any human bonds. And the more difficult it will be to disclose our internal states to others. And we'll rely either on hinting to get our needs met or wholly giving up on other people to understand us at all. What's really important to understand is that the The way these internal working models that keep us stuck in attachment styles over the course of decades uh, until we change them uh, are transmitted to us is not by thoughts. It's not like any of us have a thought, hey, I'm an anxious attached person. This person is reliably available. I find them, therefore, boring. I'm going to stay away or I'm anxious, that person's avoiding, yippee, this will be two years of my life wasted chasing after. That's not the way it works. Human beings' behaviors are influenced almost entirely by what's called somatic markers, gut feelings. In other words, we don't think in accordance with, we don't act in accordance with how we think, we act in accordance with how we feel. If early on in life, you associated love with available caregiving, reliable attention, somebody who understood you, uh, who made you feel safe. Your nervous system now will associate love with this state of ease, comfort, down-regulation. And that will be, when you meet somebody who creates that, you will be emotionally drawn to them. But suppose you're one of the children that was in an unreliable attachment environment. Um, Then what will happen is you will respond when you are with somebody who's only sometimes paying attention. Like you're on a date, it's a crowded restaurant, and the person is not always empathetically engaged. Sometimes they're looking away. Sometimes they're a little disinterested. Your nervous system goes up into a heightened stage because now you've got to keep them interested. You've got to figure out what to say. And your nervous system will, and your unconscious will associate that state with love. Oh, they're exciting. They're exciting. I feel fireworks. No, what you're actually experiencing is unreliability, but it's interpret. It is magic, fireworks, uh, suspense, drama, being on the edge of one's seat. And both, all the three non-secure attachment styles associate heightened states of hypervigilance and even low states of threat with love and with attraction. It's only those who are secure who associate a regulated nervous system with Oh, this is what I'm supposed to be seeking in another. This is what I really want this feeling of being with a best friend who I also find attractive, but I don't, my nervous system doesn't have to stay on edge constantly trying to keep them interested or trying to keep them at arm's length because I don't want to be entrapped into something that's obligating or. You know, most tragically, the disorganized, who literally are attracted to people who have hints of violence or addiction in them. So, um, again, what governs us is the way we feel. Feelings not only govern how we, who we're attracted to and how we act in relationships, they govern every choice we make in our life. The frontal lobe, its main job is when our gut feelings are propelling us in the just worst direction possible, our frontal lobes have just enough leeway to say stop and wait until another feeling comes along and trust that secondary feeling. But thought really doesn't play very much of a role in human behavior. If you'd like to hear it really spelled out by the greatest living American psychologist, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford. You can watch his Stanford interpersonal biology and uh, behavioral psychology courses. And he talks about just how little free will we have and how much we are driven by gut feelings of what Damasio called somatic markers. In any situation tonight, if you haven't eaten yet, I haven't, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I'm gonna go to the nearby Mexican restaurant and there's gonna be a choice. There's gonna be some kind of healthy salad and there's gonna be a quesadilla. And my brain will tell me, oh, eat the healthy choice. But my gut feelings are going to light up when the quesadilla, I read the quesadilla, I'm going to have a fast mental image of the quesadilla. And it's going to elicit in my amygdala, my hypothalamus past positive somatic markers. My stomach will relax. I'll start to salivate. My body will gravitate towards the word quesadilla. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to order. And that's how you're going to order too. You think you're going to order because you peruse the menu and you thought it through. You didn't. All you did was you kept on visualizing the words as images and you waited until a positive enough gut feeling impelled you to choose whatever you chose. Don't believe me? Read the latest clinical studies on the somatic marker hypothesis. It's mind-blowing. So the core of So much of what I do, not all of it, I do a lot of other things but in counseling, but is helping remap insecure patterns so that uh, people can, one, learn to detect the feelings that are associated with safety and reliability in relationships. And then two, learn how to appreciate Those feelings and not override them and not constantly go towards the feelings of excitation, but to actually begin to appreciate the feelings associated with safety and regulation. As that doesn't mean, you know, uh, a relationship has to only have feelings of safety. Sure, you can, your heart can raise a little beat and you can start to respirate a little faster. When you see someone that you're interested in, at the beginning, your dopamine levels will soar so you'll feel really alert, but it's very different from being in the stage of threat detection, which is what insecure people actually mistake for fireworks and love. I once was many, 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 many years ago, I mean, I've been sober for 29 years, so this is about 28 years ago, I was sitting with another person who's new in sobriety and she looked at me and she said, you know, I think that for all my life, I've mistaken the feeling for a fear for lust. And I was, that made such an impression. And it lingered with me until about 10 years later, I started diving head into attachment theory and uh, somatic theories and uh the work of clinical psychology. And then I was like, of course, because that's what her childhood actually primed her for. That when you're with, that it was the feeling of the mother or the father going away unpredictably, not being reliable, not paying attention, and sometimes showering the child with attention that primed her, uh, that primed what she began to associate with love and attachment. So, in Buddhist practice, um, there are early practices that were used to take people who were in the, those early schemas we called craving and aversion and delusion to what was sada or uh, confident. And these core practices have now been repurposed today in attachment theories as visualization practices that it can actually address uh, our attachment style. To be sure, if you do these meditations, but you're still chasing after an unreliable partner, it's not gonna work. You you know, there's only so much you can hope a a visualization practice will do. But if you are taking a break between relationships or you've found someone who's elicits and feelings of security and safety and you're struggling with is that all there is (laughs) or why aren't I feeling this magical spark? These are practices that actually will help that feeling become more profound, something that feels far more attractive, far more durable. And um, on the other hand, there's visualizations that can actually create a kind of aversive response to the feelings of threat or abandonment. I'm not going to do those practices, but I'm going to do the ones that are uh, associated with developing these core states. Now, I should note that one of the primary meditations that's used to address attachment disturbances is called the ideal parent protocol. I'm not gonna teach that because for some people who experienced um, early childhood traumas, it can be very, very painful. If you would like to do it, it's online. You can just type in the ideal parent protocol and the guy developed it at Harvard, Daniel P. Brown, who tragically passed away last year, but um, he leads the meditation it's also found on many other meditation uh, YouTube uh, channels. And basically what it looks like is when your eyes are closed and you're relaxed, you, t- you climb into an imaginary time machine that takes you back to your childhood. And you visualize the time in your childhood where you felt most alone and most unsupported. And then in this scenario, you visualize who would have been the ideal parent to comfort you. And you're not abandoning or criticizing your parents. Your parents' role you would know, you have done a wonderful job. You just didn't bond with them. As sometimes that happens. We can be born with, uh, due to prenatal environments, due to uh, epigenetic possibilities, due to traumas in ethnic groups due to so many other pressures. People can be born with the amygdalas that just don't allow them to bond particularly securely. So it doesn't necessarily mean if we have an anxious or avoidant or disorganized attachment style that it was necessarily in any way the caregiver's fault. But um, what we, you would do would be visualize who would be the ideal Uh, uh, figure. Believe it or not, I I hated it, but when I first did the practice, um, Mr. Rogers, I don't know, you're probably far too young, but as a kid, that's what was put on. He was in a cardigan. He was so uncool. He had this slick back hair, and he would like take off his shoes and put them by the door, and he had this Singy songy voice that even as a kid I found irritating. Yet, for some reason, as an adult, when I was visualizing a reparative figure from my father who was an alcoholic and a violent man, Mr. Rogers was the ideal. Uh, You know, I would have preferred maybe even the Tom Hanks version of Mr. Rogers, but no, it was Mr. Rogers. But whoever it would be you just sit, visualize them, and you imagine what they would say, how they would come for you, how they would look at you. And what you're doing is you're creating an internal representation of secure attachment. And from that, you begin to know what to look for in other people by this visualization of what would make you feel most secure and safe. Um, so again, I'm not gonna teach that one because for people who had traumatic abusive childhoods, the the juxtaposition between the image and the abuse or the neglect can be so painful, as well as also sometimes people who have um, disorganized attachments with an alcoholic parent or a parent that was borderline or whatever, that child will not be able to conjure any soothing image, no matter how they try. So at first, many people just can't do it. So it would be a pointless meditation to teach in this environment. What I am gonna teach is another meditation that was developed by the same team, which very hardly anyone ever has a traumatic or a painful response to. And it's in the book Attachment, Disturbances in Adults. It's directly lifted from an early Buddhist practice called Kaganusati. And what we're gonna do is we're going to visualize ourselves not in the past, but in the future, in an ideal relationship. It could be the one you already have if you're in one, but an ideal relationship where all your needs are met, your needs for uh, attention or distance, your need for space, your need for reliability, and what we're going to do is conjure that image so that we can then create in our bodies the secure markers that will indicate to us when we are getting those needs met in our adult life and even more so that will gravitate naturally to those people who provide those needs so it's not going to happen in one setting you got to keep practicing it but it's a very it's clinically been shown to be a very powerful practice. And of course, even before that, I'm going to also lead us on just some down-regulating tools so relax, feel comfortable. If you don't want to do the second part of the meditation, you can just stick with the soothing parts. So thank you for listening. I hope that that was in some
1: way interesting. And so find a really comfortable seated position. And closing the eyes. And if you don't want to close your eyes, just look at the ground in front of you. Don't try
0: to attain a perfect, upright,
1: Buddhist posture. Sit in whatever way you feel really comfortable. So if... There's not much space in here, but if there was space, I'd even say you
0: could lie down if you wanted or just stretch out. But don't feel any need to try to look like whatever you think a meditator looks like. Bring your
1: attention within and just find in your body some internal sensation that feels soothing or stable enough for you to land your attention on. Now, for many of us, that will be the feeling of energy moving up with inhalation
0: and down with exhalation. Or it could be the feeling of the chest or belly expanding as we breathe in, and then the
1: release and the contraction of exhalation. But it doesn't have to be the breath, you could find a sensation in the palms of your hands. Very often I like the sensations right behind my eyeballs, or the eyes themselves if they feel like they're floating in warm pools of water. Just try to inhabit your body from within. And if you like, you can begin to move around. And if there's any areas that feel
0: uncomfortable or tight, bring your awareness to those,
1: to that bracing or clenching. And just see if you're Awareness can be like a soothing, compassionate spotlight that allows those muscles to relax. using the awareness just to spotlight any thing that's uncomfortable and just breathe into the tightness. And then as you breathe out, just see if you can
0: release the bracing around whatever's
1: uncomfortable. So if you feel it in your lower back or leg, just Breathe into and then try to spread the energy through the tightness. What's most important is to cultivate a state of mind that is welcoming and open, in no way judgmental of your internal experience, even if your mind
0: drifts into thoughts or sleepiness or
1: distraction. A thousand times, if you bring it back a thousand times, then it's a a wonderful practice. Simply doing that is wiring into you a way to recognize when you've become caught up in intrusive thoughts and a way out. If you're feeling anxious or your attention is bouncing about, try
0: to extend the length of your exhalations. That shifts us into
1: a parasympathetic predisposition. On the other hand, if you're feeling tired, worn out, groggy, then Place the emphasis on your inhalations, really try to bring as much oxygen to your lungs as you can. If it helps, you can visualize a place where you feel really safe and try to conjure in your body how it feels when you're at that place. So if it's a chair, overlooking a beautiful vista and a hiking trail. What does it feel like when you're sitting there Try to conjure in your body that feeling of being in that chair? If it's being at the beach where you feel yourself relaxing into this, the sand, What does it feel like when all of your muscles release and on the beach you're just hearing the sound of the waves approaching and then retreating? Try to conjure that state. So if you'd like to continue to dwell in a state of ease, by all means, if you'd like to do the practice, I describe, I'd like you or invite you to visualize a future situation. You're in a spacious, Comfortable living room or space that feels right for you. You don't have to so much visualize it, just try to cultivate in your
0: body what it would feel like to be blazing on a weekend
1: without any obligations where you could just relax. And in the background, you sense the presence of another figure This could be someone you're in a relationship with or a friend or a roommate or anything you'd like to conjure. In this situation, you don't have to speak to keep them attentive if you needed their attention. There is nothing you need to do nothing you need to do at all. You are just there and there's someone that you feel comfortable with
0: who's in the same space where you can relax.
1: You don't need to, again, say anything And in this situation, you feel not only safe, but you feel no obligation to do anything. Yet at the same time, you know that if connection were helpful, it would be available. And if you can, bring to mind an example or two of how someone would create the feeling of being safe for you. For some, it might be someone who is just there working on their own stuff, but would respond. Or it could be someone who might bring you tea if they made it. It might be someone who just once in a while checks in and asks how you're doing. What feels like an example of a connection that feels just right for you? See if you can imagine a situation where you would express some need and this person would understand what need would that be and how would they respond in a way that made you feel understood. Now, if you like, you can bring to mind something that's vulnerable, that you find difficult to share with most people in your life. Something that you would only disclose to someone who you had the expectation of understanding. You would not. Disclose this to anyone who you expected to judge or be dismissive. What would it be that you would disclose and how would they respond in a way that felt just right? How would they reassure you? And lastly, imagine a scene in which this counterpart, this individual, would provide you with a sense they're delighted in everything about you. Would they? Smile and beam or what expression, how would they convey and express joy in your presence in their life? What would feel just right? most of all sense that they're not going anywhere. Unless of course you need space. And if you can conjure a feeling of what it's like to be really, Secure. What does that feel like? How do you know you feel secure? How does your body tell you that you're safe, that you're appreciated, that you're important? So take your time, and when it really feels right, slowly open your eyes.